No worries. Okay, so, that's better. So, Joseph is quite a story. Quite a story. 17-year-old, sold into slavery by his brothers, all the stuff we've looked at over the last five weeks. Age 30, prime minister of Egypt. Age 39, we'll look at today in a moment. He was administering the grain in a time of famine. His life was not an overnight success. He didn't have an easy path as we've looked at. And if you were to look at the face of Joseph, you would see a lot of miles where he carried a heavy load. So archaeologists have been doing some digging in Egypt, and they found this picture of Joseph, age 39. Not really. But I was trying to imagine what, that's not really, that is a joke. That is not true. That is not Joseph, age 39. But that's why I imagine he might have looked like with all that he's been through. Age 39, you know, oh, we find an archaeological dig, some Tutankhamun's tomb or something or other. There's Joseph, picture of him, age 39. I'm kind of a little bit older than that, so I think I'm doing all right. But no, that is not Joseph, age 39. I promise you that is not. But the point I'm just trying to make is, okay, that, 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 that life can take its toll. You know, and wrinkles is just one way of, of that being a way where we can see the story in our faces, where we can see a struggle, difficult times, the weight that we have faced, the difficulties and pain that we have faced. What we're going to look at today in Genesis chapter 42 is Joseph beginning to face his past. So we'll look at the scripture, it'll come up on the screen, you can also follow on your phone or in a Bible, but we're going to be looking at Genesis 42. This is Joseph facing or starting to face his past. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Just pause there for a moment. There is grain available in Egypt. So this is Jacob, Joseph's dad, and who is away away. And he has found out that there is food. Two decades later, two decades later, he is looking for food and there is food in Egypt. But we can see that not much has changed over two decades. This family is still pretty messed up. The dad, Jacob, is critical. You can hear him talking to his sons. Why do you just keep looking at each other? Okay, why? Why aren't you doing anything about this grain situation? Why aren't you doing anything about finding some food? But you can infer from that that the sons aren't doing anything, that they aren't kind of trying to find out where food is from, that they've got no purpose and no drive. So after two decades, it doesn't look like much has changed back in Joseph's hometown. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Again, let's pause there for a moment. So Joseph and Benjamin shared the same mother, okay? And Joseph had been the apple of his dad's eye. 
Joseph was the favorite of Jacob. Jacob the dad had a favorite when there was 12 sons, and that was Joseph. Now that favoritism had been broken when Joseph had left, he thought dead. But Jacob now took that brokenness and sinfulness and continued to put it into practice with Benjamin. So it was firstly, Jacob was like, well, Joseph's my favorite. Joseph's the one that I will parent more than you the other. Now Joseph is gone. I'm going to do the same with Benjamin. You see, there's a little pattern here. If we don't deal with sinful patterns in our lives, it continues on to the next relationship. If we don't deal with issues in our lives, then it follows on. It follows us. We don't deal with, with, with harmful patterns of behavior or ways of thinking. It carries on to our next friendships, to our, to our next place of work, to the next church that we go to, or whatever it may be. Jacob had never, ever dealt with his issues of favoritism. And you can see it playing out here with Benjamin, who was the, the, the son of Rachel that Joseph and, and Benjamin both were. Let's read on, verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. You have here the fulfillment of that dream that Joseph had roughly 22 years ago. He was 17 then, and commentators think he was around 39 now. He was 30 when he became prime minister, seven years of plenty, and they think roughly two further years on into the famine was when Joseph's brothers arrived. 22 years before the dream was realized. I want to encourage some of you who are living with dreams that haven't yet become a reality. Joseph... His dream took 22 years to be fully realized. There was a partial reality after 13 years. There's another full reality here after 22 years. The dreams that God gives to us, his timing is perfect. Let's read on. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked, from the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Remember, they thought he was dead. He was also dressed as an Egyptian with everything that goes with that. And he was prime minister of Egypt. They would have had no inkling that this was their brother standing in front of them. Then he remembered his dreams about them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is protected. He asked where his land is unprotected. Sorry. Next slide. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men and not spies. <laughs> Isn't this interesting? Okay. The brothers are trying to say that they are honest men. For Joseph, that must have just stung him to the heart. You know, are you serious? You're saying you're honest men? I know what happened all those years ago. You certainly are not honest men. 
but they're adamant. No, 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 no. We are honest men. Say, they said to the brother that they had sold into slavery. Sometimes the Bible can be, you know, so full of, of irony and all kinds of dynamics going on here. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. And one is no more. Oh, no, he's standing right in front of you, you know, and one is no more. No, no, no. He's dressed as an Egyptian. He's prime minister of Egypt, and he's looking at you while you are all bowed down in front of him. I mean, it's, 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 it's wonderful, isn't it? But there is pain here. There's real pain in this conversation. There's the pain of the brothers. They are being interrogated by the prime minister of Egypt. They think that they could be killed at any moment or certainly have no grain to take back to them, to Canaan. So there's, there's pain in this conversation. And there's pain for Joseph revisiting his past. Painful to see his brothers there right in front of him. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies. And this is how you'll be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. If you're not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. Now, I'll read that in a minute. Just keep it there. When you hear something in scripture that rings a bell, you need to stop and think. When I read that, that Joseph put his brothers into prison for three days, it rings a bell. It rings a bell, Old Testament to New Testament. Ding, 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 three days. How many days was Jesus in the grave? Three days. So if you look at this, you can see something beautiful because the brothers were put into prison for their wrongdoing, their guilt and their shame for three days. Jesus died on the cross and was put into the grave for three days for yours and mine guilt and shame. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? You can see these little glimpses of, of the New Testament, of, of Jesus, of the gospel that come all throughout the Old Testament. It's a little glimpse, it's a little ding that goes off when you read that three days. He put them in custody for three days. Let's read on, verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. Joseph is literally facing his past. The, the brothers in front of him, he's literally facing his past. In the next couple of weeks, today, in the next couple of Sundays, in these next few chapters of Genesis, we're going to be looking at facing your past. We're going to be touching on things like forgiveness, justice, healing, restoration, and freedom. 
Now, if you're going to face your past, then you begin facing your past by having to face people from your past. And that causes pain. But we need to face this pain. 99% of the pain from our past, 99% of the pain in this room has a face attached to it. Because that pain is either caused by a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a work colleague, an authority figure, or we could go on and on in the list. And that pain has different shapes and different sizes. For some of you, it's being unjustly fired from a job. For some of you, being dumped in a relationship by a boyfriend or a girlfriend. For some of you, it might be being mugged in the streets. For some of you, it goes really deep and serious, and it's physical or sexual abuse. Now, this is some heavy-duty, heavy-lifting stuff, but it's important. It's important to deal with it because it's important to then bring healing. And we're going to be talking about forgiveness a lot over the next couple of weeks. We're going to get to it in greater detail in a couple of weeks' time. But I just want to mention a couple of things which are really important. If you forgive, you are not saying it's okay. So important. When you forgive someone, you set yourself free. But when you forgive, you're not saying it's okay. The second thing about forgiveness I just want to say straight out that is really important is if you forgive, you don't open the door to fellowship. You don't open the door to reconnecting the relationship. Joseph had suffered massive abuse. I think it's important to state this. You can miss this. Oh, what a nice story of Joseph. I know all the songs from Joseph's in his Technicolor Dreamcoat. What a lovely little story from slavery to prime minister. And, oh, loved his brothers, saw his dad. Oh, what a wonderful story. But, but Joseph suffered massive abuse. He was sold into slavery. He was beaten up and thrown down the pit by his brothers. There was the attempted sexual abuse of Potiphar's wife, which he avoided, but he ended up in prison. Now, We don't have this explicitly in the Bible, but history books tell us that Egyptian slaves suffered all kinds of abuse. Physical abuse at the hand of their masters and often sexual abuse of all descriptions and types. So Joseph, his life, he had suffered a huge amount of abuse. And then here he is in chapter 42 with the people who started it right in front of him. The people who began this whole train of events, there they were, bowing down in front of him. So Joseph is being very careful. He's being very wise. He's not telling them straight away who he is. There's a series of tests that he takes them through. He's going slowly on this process of facing his past. And he asks about Benjamin. Well, why ask about Benjamin? Why didn't you ask about anything else? Why do you ask about your dad? Why did you ask about Benjamin? He asked about Benjamin because, as I mentioned earlier, he's the only other brother who mother they shared, shared the same mother. Jacob had four wives, which is a whole different story and a whole messed up kind of another story. But, but Jacob, sorry, Joseph and Benjamin shared the same mom. And Joseph was sold into slavery due to favoritism. 
So he wanted to know, oh, I want to know. Firstly, is Benjamin still alive? Secondly, has the biological brother that I share, has he suffered the same kind of abuse that, that I suffered? And he wanted to see if the brothers had changed or not. Have, have they changed? Have they, have, they, have, they, have they worked through some of their issues? Have they, have they become kinder? Have they become more and more gentle? Or are they still treating Benjamin like they used to treat me? We, uh, as Christians, as children of God, we have a challenge in our lives to treat people differently. And also we have the power of the Holy Spirit and God inside of us to help us to forgive and to deal with the hurt and pain from the past. But it's not easy. It's not easy. It's incredibly challenging. And I want to just, again, help you with this. You see, the end game when it comes to facing our past, when it comes to facing our hurts, when it comes to facing people who have, who have maybe greatly hurt us and harmed us in the past, cheated on us, lied about us, abused us, gossiped about us, whatever level or degree of pain, the end game is not justice. It's not justice. I want justice. I want justice if someone has wronged me. I want justice to make them pay for what they've done. But here's the problem with wanting justice. You can't always get it. And if justice is your end game, then you become eternally chained to that. The end game when it comes to dealing with our past when it comes to dealing with people who have hurt us and wronged us, the end game has to be yours and mine's healing and for freedom. Yours and mine's healing and forgiveness. That, that, that is the end game. We have to say to God, let God have the justice. Let God have the justice. Romans 12, verses 19 to 22. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with God, with good, sorry. Let healing be your goal. It's a challenge because we want justice deep down inside of us. We want that person to pay for what they did to us. But you can't always get justice. And if you are always hell-bent on getting justice, you will be eternally chained to that and never know the freedom and never know the healing that Jesus has for you. Justice is for God. Let healing be your goal. Let's read on. Verse 21. They said to one another, this is the brothers, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded for us with his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Isn't it interesting what they are thinking? Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? 
Now he must give an account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. Joseph turned away from them and began to weep. But then he came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back on his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and they left. This is an emotionally charged moment in the story. The brothers, verse 21, are distressed. They're distressed about this whole situation. And it's interesting, without knowing that Joseph is in front of them, their mind goes back to what happened 20 years ago. Their mind is obviously still carrying guilt from what they did. The brothers, they are distressed. They are feeling guilty. They are, they are really in a bad place emotionally. Verse 24, Joseph has to turn away and weep. Joseph is, is, is emotional at this moment. But the difference is, as we will see, is that, that Joseph is, is a healing emotion that is taking place. The brothers are struggling with guilt, and they are struggling with regret, and they are struggling with shame. Joseph is in a healing place of having worked through his emotions. Let me tell you something really important here, something that I have only learned in recent years. The goal of our spiritual life as believers is not to be rid of your emotions. It's not to try and push all your emotions out of your life. No, no, no. The goal of your spiritual life is for healthy emotions. Not no emotions, but healthy emotions. You see, the brothers, they were toxic with their emotions. There was unconfessed sin, and it was a mess. They were distressed. They were in pain. They were feeling shame. They were feeling guilt. Joseph, Joseph has a healing going on in his life. He has a healthy understanding of his emotions. This was painful for him, painful to see the brothers who had put him in slavery. It was painful for him to see them. He had to go away and weep, but that's not a bad thing. It's good to cry. Jesus himself wept. Now, some of us, you see, some of us say, I, I, I just, I just, I'm all good with my emotions. Oh, I, all my emotions are sorted. Nothing to see here. Well, that's dangerous. It's dangerous because it's like when you're driving your car and, you know, we have all these warning lights for your petrol, for your oil. You have your warning lights for the, for the pressure of your tires. They're helpful because when the warning light comes on, you need to do something to make sure that your, your, your car is going to run smoothly. If you cut off any understanding of your emotions, you will not see the warning lights when they come. You will not see the warning lights of needing to act and, and needing help and needing to fix the eternal engine of your heart and your soul and your mind. You see, all of us have pain from the past, all of us. And we all need help to process that pain. We need to 
face the emotions that spring up from the past. Jesus had all these emotions. We haven't got time to go in it now, but, but Jesus exhibited emotions in a healthy way. He did not sin. Jesus was angry. He did not sin. He exhibited anger in a healthy way. Jesus had grief and sadness. He exhibited it in a holy, healthy way. Every emotion that you can think of, Jesus experienced and Jesus showed us how to manage and how to live out in a healthy way. The problem is many of us find unhealthy ways to respond to our emotions. We medicate. Some of us use alcohol. We say, well, I need a drink. Time is so difficult. Life is so difficult. All of this is happening. I need a drink. I'll tell you what, actually, what you really need is the Holy Spirit. That's what you need. Okay? Drink doesn't die for you on a cross and know you by name, but Jesus does. And, uh, you know, his, his Holy Spirit is what we need. But, but some of us just medicate through alcohol. Other of us medicate through people. We can't be alone. We just cannot be alone with our emotions. I need to be with my friends. I need to be with my girlfriend, my boyfriend. I need to be with my husband. I need to be with my children. I cannot have a moment on my own because if I am, then I am having to deal with my emotions. Other of us medicate through distraction. Well, I just want to be distracted all the time, whether it be through gaming, social media, Netflix, all those things, and none of those things are wrong in themselves, but it's like, well, my distraction, 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 distraction. I'm not dealing with my emotions. I'm just going to medicate by being distracted. Medicate by being distracted. Other of us medicate by creating an enemy. We say, well, the way I get through my emotions and the pain of my past is I create an enemy who everything in my life is focused on. They are the one I hate. They are the one I'm seeking to bring down. It could be a person. It could be an institution. It could be anything. Isn't it interesting that Joseph, who had plenty of reason to be an enemy with his brothers, he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He didn't create them as his enemy. Other of us medicate through approval gods. We just need and we just seek and we desire approval. We live for the approval of others. And that's how we, how we deal with all these emotions around us, that we need the approval of people in our lives or institutions or work or social media or whatever it is that gives us the approval that we desire. All of us will do some or all of those things. All of us at different times in our lives, with no judgment intended, would have done all or some of those things. God made us with emotions. Like I said, it's not the spiritual goal of our life to rid our lives of emotion. Rather to have healthy emotions. If I can be really vulnerable with you for a moment and just pull back the curtain for a minute. So the 10-year the anniversary of Hope Church, the 10-year anniversary of this church was the moment in my life where I had to deal with the biggest amount of emotions that I've ever experienced. I'm a kind of a guy who kind of just gets on with life and head down and just keeps on going, keeps on going, keeps on going. Ten years, ten years of planting and leading Hope Church and, and a young family and all kinds of challenges all around that connected to that. Ten years was this moment in my life where the warning lights went on. 
had to work through and deal and work through so many emotions that were foreign to me. Things that I had never really touched, never really worked through, never really talked about with anyone, never really asked for God's help, never really gone to a place of seeking freedom or, or help with those emotions. That was a significant moment for me three and a bit years ago. We all need to deal healthily with our emotions. And what I want to do to kind of close this is to help you. I want to help you with using three words. Because when it comes to facing our past, I think there is three words that are incredibly integral to doing that in a healthy way. And those three words are guilt, shame, and regret. You see, the brothers were guilty. They were guilty. They were guilty for what they had done to Joseph. They were guilty of putting him into a pit, beating him up, and setting him to slaves, as a slave. They were guilty, 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 guilty. But guilt is more than an emotion. Guilt is a condition. The Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all guilty. We are all guilty, whether we feel like it or not. Guilt is our status before God. When you think of yourself here and you think of the Lord in heaven, what is my status without Jesus? My status without Jesus is that I am guilty before God. But Jesus went to the cross to die in my place, to deal with my sin, so that my guilt and sin is dealt with once and for all. So our guilt, our condition is dealt with by the cross of Christ. So I want you to know that your condition, your guilty condition, if you are a Christian, your guilty condition is changed as a result of the cross. You are now no longer guilty. You are a child of God. And if you're not a Christian here today, you're not a believer today, you can make that transition. You can make that step to go from guilty to child of God, loved by God through Jesus Christ. So that's the word guilt, guilty. But what about shame? What about shame? You see, shame is a temporary emotion. Shame has a good aspect to it where it awakens us to our guilt. We all know that when we do something wrong, that feeling of shame often comes over us that then we realize our guilt. We realize that I have done something wrong. An initial moment feeling of shame is not a bad thing. It should lead us to guilt. It should lead us to repentance. It should lead us to know that Jesus has dealt with it on the cross once and for all. But we are not to stay and rest and camp in shame. That's the problem that some Christians make. That the shame comes when we do something wrong. We are to feel guilty and then we are to be set free by the blood of Jesus. But unfortunately, what some Christians do is they feel the shame and then they camp out in that shame. And they bow their head and they 
put the cloak over them and they feel the shame of what they have done and they don't move into the light. They don't move into the freedom and the healing that God has for us. Romans 8 and verse 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. There is no shame, no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. None at all. Whatever you may have done in your past, I don't care how bad or how terrible it is, but there is no shame in Christ Jesus. No condemnation in Christ Jesus. That is the joy of the gospel. That is the beauty of the gospel. By the grace of God, we are saved. We are set free. We are no longer guilty. We are children of God. We are no longer under shame. We are under the pleasure and the enjoyment of God. So when it comes to facing our past, we need to know you are not to camp out under shame. You are not to camp out under condemnation because there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So guilt and shame. And then the third one, regret. The brothers have got regrets. You can hear them. Oh, I wish we'd never done that. I'm sure this is connected. They didn't know anything. They didn't have a clue. But they're talking. You heard it in the passage we read. Oh, I wish we hadn't done that to Joseph because maybe this is connected. Maybe maybe if we hadn't done that, then this wouldn't have happened. They're, they're, They're thinking through regrets. They're grieving the loss. They're thinking through the past and they're thinking of the things that they wish they had done or they wish they had not done. Listen. We all have regrets. I have regrets in my life. You have regrets in your life. If you don't, you're not human. You're not alive. You know, we all have regrets. If you're a parent, let me tell you this. If you're a parent, and I have a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 9-year-old, if you are a parent, you have regrets. Okay, you read the parenting books and you think, oh, my life, rip that out, I'm not... It's a complete mess. <laughs> I'm not a perfect parent. Everything we're doing is wrong. Lord, save our children because they're going to be so messed up. I mean, you know, we have regrets. There's somehow, somewhere you've done something wrong that the parent book tells you you shouldn't do. You, you have. All of us have. Multiple of times. Regret is part of life. Even the Apostle Paul, kind of like one of the holiest people in the Bible outside of Jesus. Even the Apostle Paul said this, to paraphrase, he says, all the things I should do, I don't do. And all the things that I should not do, I do. That's the Apostle Paul. That's the holy guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament and planted a whole bunch of churches. That's him. So if that's Paul, I bet that's you and that's me. That certainly is me. We all have regrets that say, I wish I'd taken that step of faith. Why was I so fearful? Why didn't I step out of the boat and do X or Y? Why didn't I speak to that person? Why didn't I take that that punt with that business? Why didn't I kind of go for that job that was the one that, that, that God had for me? Why, why, why? We live with these regrets. So what do we do with our regrets? I told you very simply what to do with our guilt and our shame. But what do we do? with our regrets. Two things. The first is confession. It's linked to what we do with guilt and what we do with shame. 1 John 1 
verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us from our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a wonderful verse. We preached on 1 John before Christmas. That is a wonderful, glorious verse. If you feel guilty that you've messed up and you feel that sense of shame, you are to confess your sins to God. You are to tell him what you have done and you are to know that he has forgiven you. He has cleansed you of all unrighteousness and he has set you on the path to go again. When it comes to regret, part of it is the past is dealt with through Jesus Christ. And now I press on. I press on. How do we do that? We do that through confession. We do that through speaking out our sins. Do that on your own. You don't need a priest, but you do that on your own in front of Jesus. And as you do that to him, you're not telling anything him anything he doesn't already know. But as you do that, a freedom comes. You break something when you speak out the wrong things that you have done, the wrong things in your life that you are ashamed of, and the guilt and the shame that is in your past. When you speak that out in confession, something breaks, and there is a wonderful future that is for you. How do you do, what do you do with regret? Confession. The second thing is you realize and you understand that God restores. God restores. Let me read a scripture to you, Joel 2, 23 to 25. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And listen to this, verse 25. I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust, the other locust and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. God restores. When there is regret in our lives, we need to understand that the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus who loves you and died for you, is a God of overflow. He's a God of plenty. He's a God of abundance. He's a God who will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. He is saying that I will restore you. And I won't just restore you to what you were once before. I will restore you to an abundance that you have not yet experienced. To an abundance that will blow your mind. What we thought was gone and in the past is nothing because what is in the future is far better because the best is yet to come. That is the gospel. Amen. Absolutely. Amen. That is the gospel. The gospel. I will restore you. Whatever years the locusts may have eaten, there is an abundance.